Hello and welcome to this Latrobe Asia event, Japan's Evolving Security Policy. My name is Beck Strading. I am the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, as is custom in Australia, I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders past, present uh, and emerging of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. And I would like to extend this respect to any Indigenous participants who are joining us online today. Part of our role at Latrobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. In her new book, Japan's Evolving Security Policy, Professor Kyoko Hatakiyama examines the expansion of Japan's military roles in the post-Cold War period specifically looking at the importance of the collective ideas held by political parties and the effects of international norms on security policy. It is my great privilege to help launch this important and timely book with Kyoko, and I am joined by the author and an expert panel to help unpack the changes and consistencies in Japan's security policy and what this means for Asia. So first, I'd like to welcome Professor Kyoko Hatakiyama, who is a Professor of International Relations at the Graduate School of International Studies and Regional Development at the University of Niigata Prefecture. Welcome and congratulations on the book, Kyoko. Yes, thank you very much. And actually, thank you very much for inviting me to such a wonderful event. And I'm very happy to have an opportunity to talk about my book here. Well, we are delighted to help you launch the book. <laughs> thank, you, thank you, Becca. Thank you, idea. Thank you. Our next panel panelist is Associate Professor Nobuhiro Aizawa, who is an Associate Professor in International Relations at the Graduate School of Social and Cultural Studies at Kyushu University and another good friend of Latrobe Asia. It's great to see you again, Nobu. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for inviting. It's it's always the pleasure to be part of this Latrobe Asia. So thank you so much. And last but certainly not least, we have Professor Nick Bisley, who is the Dean of School of Humanities and Social Sciences and Professor of International Relations at Latrobe University. Great to have you back at Latrobe Asia, as always, for this event, Nick. Uh, thanks, Beck. Thanks for um, being kind enough to include me in the side of my job I don't get to do enough of and enjoy the most. So thank you. <laughs> it's always good to have you along. Uh, there will be an opportunity for audience Q&A in the second half of this webinar for which we will be using the Q&A function, which you should be able to see at the bottom of your screen. So please feel free to write your questions into the Q&A bar as we go along, and I will get uh, back to those questions in the second half. But first, let's start with Kyoko. Congratulations again on the book. It's such a tremendous achievement uh, to write a monograph uh, on such a weighty uh, and substantive topic such as this. Uh, and as I mentioned in the intro, I mean, your book is really trying to understand the shifts uh, in Japan's security policy. So I thought we might start with that. I mean, what are the most significant ways in which Japan's uh, security outlook or its policies have changed? And why has it changed? What are the forces that are pushing Japan uh, in different directions? Okay, thank you very much, Beck. So I tried to answer this question. So during the Cold War, Japan had maintained a low profile in the security field without playing a substantial security role equivalent to its economic power. Japan's contribution to global peace was made mainly through financial means. However, Japan's security policy has evolved in three points. First, Japan loosened an arms trade ban policy, which was considered a symbol of so-called Japan's anti-militarism in 2011, and then introduced a new policy on arms transfer in 2014. The ban had long prohibited the provision of military-related assistance and military cooperation. Although this move seemed trivial, it greatly expanded Japan's maritime diplomacy. For instance, the new policy enabled Japan to deepen defense engagement with not only the Asian states, but also like-minded states such as the UK and Australia. Second, 
With the introduction of the PKO bill in 1992, Japan started to send its self-defense forces overseas for participation in UN PKOs. Although the self-defense forces was not allowed to use force, it was a remarkable step. Then the government gradually expanded the self-defense forces roles in UN PKOs by loosening the restriction. Third point, third, Japan has also expanded the self-defense forces scope of action in the Japan-US Security Alliance by allowing the self-defense forces to support US military action, if not directly. Japan's shift culminated in the adoption of the security legislation in 2015. The security legislation is remarkable since it allowed Japan to exercise the limited right of collective self-defense. Successful governments had long argued that Japan was not permitted to exercise the right of collective self-defense on the ground that such a right was prohibited by Article 9 of the Constitution. However, in 2015, the Abe government permitted the right by reinterpreting Article 9. It also expanded the scope of its participation in international peace cooperation activities, such as the war on terrorism. This permanent law enabled Japan to participate in collective military action, although limited to logistical support. The reason for the shift lies in Japan's desire to contribute to global peace and security as a member of the international community. Existing literature argue that unstable environments such as North Korea's nuclear threat and China's major rights pushed Japan to expand its major roles. I do not exclude such a factor. Indeed, this is one of the contributing factors. However, the story is not that simple. North Korea's nuclear adventure started in the early 1990s. China showed its appetite for military annexation of Taiwan in 1996. However, these threats were not that serious. China's military power was by far weaker than that of the United States. North Korea's nuclear development program was at a very early stage. Compared to these security threats, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union posed a more serious threat to Japan. Nevertheless, Japan did not take tangible steps to increase its military strength. Although Japan did not take a remarkable step during the Cold War, in the 1990s, Japan started to expand its military role, even though the security threat was not that serious. The external factor cannot fully explain why Japan's security policy began to evolve in the 1990s. Moreover, this factor cannot explain Japan's continuous search for a more significant role in international peace cooperation activities. Japan decided to participate in UNPKOs, not because the regional situation was fragile. Similarly, North Korea's nuclear threat and China's assertiveness in the maritime domain in the 2010s were contributing factors for Japan's evolving security role. However, Japan would have been able to cope with such a contingency by simply reinforcing the alliance with the United States. Japan did not have to expand its roles in UNPKOs or other international peace activities in fact, Japan has been keen to expand its security ties with like-minded states such as the UK and Australia. We cannot fully explain its enlarged military roles in international peace cooperation activities without considering Japan's internalization of the international norm. Given the fragile Asian security situation, Japan is eager to establish itself as a core member of the international community or of a community of like-minded states by showing its readiness to make a military contribution. Case studies in my book show that Japan hopes to contribute to global peace and security by making a military contribution, including troop dispatch and military collaboration. Japan wanted to place itself into a kind of collective security system and create a sense of us. This system did not work during the Cold War. 
international events such as the Gulf War. However, it increased its political importance in the post-Cold War. International events such as the Gulf War, many regional ethnic conflicts, and terrorism, all events contributed to strengthening the international norm that requires a state to make a military contribution. So the main force pushing Japan in that direction is, as I said, Japan's internalization of an international norm. As I said in my book, Japan's drive for expanded media roles was driven by its desire to contribute to global security. I observed that such a desire existed among politicians and officials even during the Cold War. However, an attempt to expand its military role was strictly limited due to a domestic political confrontation between the left, such as the Japan Socialist Party and the conservatives, such as the Liberal Democratic Party during the Cold War. However, the Gulf War in 1991 operated as a trigger, which pushed Japan in that direction. The war brought about the new way of thinking, in other words, an international norm to Japan. The international norm that all states needed to contribute to global peace and stability by sending troops became suddenly visible after the Cold War. During the Cold War, the collective system did not work. However, due to the disappearance of antagonism between East and West and the emergence of new security threats, this international norm surfaced and eventually prevailed. After the Gulf War, Japan accepted this international norm by modifying it because the international norm was not compatible with Japan's domestic norm, which prohibited the use of force. The result was Japan's evolving security policy. So I might press you on that a little bit, if I may, Kyoko. I mean, it's quite interesting. Uh, I guess we tend to think of, of militarization of states increasing their military capacities and contributions uh, in terms of realist policy, but it seems that you're taking a quite constructivist approach to understanding Japan's uh, exactly. evolving security policy norms, yes. ideas, identity, uh, and particularly domestic politics. So I guess um, what I'd really like to ask you about is more on the role of domestic politics and, and norms. And, and you're talking about the kind of relationship between domestic and international norms uh, in Japan and how that actually explains this shift that you've described. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your question. So Japan's security role was extremely limited during the Cold War because Japan's domestic politics was divided over how Japan secured its national security. After the end of World War II, maintaining peace and stability was the most crucial goal for a Japan that had experienced a disastrous war. However, views on how and by what means Japan should achieve this peace varied throughout the Cold War period. Although Article 9 of the Constitution laid the ground for a peaceful path, the wording was very ambiguous. For instance, it did not state to what degree and under what circumstances Japan was allowed to use force. This ambiguity led to a heated debate among politicians. The politicians shared the domestic norm that Japan should not use force but they did not agree to the way to comply it. That is to say, the political parties shared the norm, but had a different idea in complying with the norm. On one hand, left-wing parties such as the Japan Socialist Party condemned, that exist, condemned the existence of the self-defense forces and the alliance with the United States as unconstitutional. They argued that Japan's national security should be attained by becoming a neutral state without arming. The JSP, the Japan Socialist Party, denied Japan's right to use force even for self-defense. This argument, the so-called anti-militarist idea, had long maintained a degree of influence, especially during the Cold War. On the other hand, the Liberal Democrat Party interpreted the constitution differently. 
the Liberal Democratic Party denied the right to use force beyond self-defense or to resolve international disputes. However, the party argued that the constitution did not prohibit Japan from possessing the minimum level of force to ensure its national security. It also contended that Japan could use force to protect itself. I call this idea a normal state idea. So during the Cold War, the domestic politics was divided by the two camps, that is to say, the anti-militarist group and the normal state idea group. I show you a slide quickly. Um, so and this is a slide. Um, I hope you can see the slide. So there is a two groups in Japan, the normal state idea group, such as the Liberal Democratic Party and the anti-militarist groups, such as the Japan Socialist Party. And there's domestic norms of non-use of force. And uh, this is the arrow, oh, sorry, shows the international norm. Okay. So, um, the confrontational structure resulted in Japan's low profile in the security field because an attempt to expand Japan's security role was always censured by the left, leading to political uh, instability. However, from the 1990s onwards, uh, the influence of the international, the influence of the uh, Japan Socialist Party declined. Um, the influence, also the influence of the international norm of making a troop contribution became evident and entered Japanese society. Coincidentally, the left influence was on the decline and I'm going to show the second slide like this. So the orange part shows the anti-militarist group and uh, the blue part shows the normal state group. The left started to lose its influence in the 1980s because of Japan's economic growth and also diminishing possibilities of Japan going to war. This decline eventually led to the dissolution of the Japan Socialist Party in 1996. This means the ideational, ideational division over the approach to its national security almost disappeared. Since then, uh, sorry. So since then, domestic politics has been highly advantageous to the normal state idea group, which supports Japan's more prominent media role. Almost all parties, except for the Communist Party and the Social Democratic Party, internalize the modified version of the international norm that requires a state to make a military contribution to global security. Nevertheless, Japan's security role did not expand limitlessly. The conflicting domestic norm of non-use of force operated as a stumbling block to Japan's full participation in collective security. Japan accepted the international norm, but it did so with alternations so as not to violate the existing domestic norm. As a result, Japan's participation in international peace activities remained limited to ensure that it would not use force. The localization of the international norm occurred, but the competition between the domestic and international norms has continued until either of them tips the balance. Although Japan's politics is now advantageous to a normal state idea group that supports Japan's more significant military role, minor differences exist among the parties. Such differences are mainly about the degree of forces to be used and how Japan would be involved in global security. For example, the LDP emphasized the importance of Japan-US alliance. In contrast, other opposition parties emphasize the importance of the United Nations. These differences are minor. Rather, I want to emphasize that all, they all agreed to Japan's significant military roles for global peace, but also support Japan's non-use of force domestic norm. That is to say, their policy is loosely constrained by the domestic norm. That is why, for instance, 
the security legislation does not fully allow Japan to use force for collective security. Japan would send its troops, but its troop contribution is limited, limited to tasks that would not involve the use of force. Overall, external factors tend to be overemphasized since it is easy to prove a causal relationship. However, close examination of the case studies showed that domestic and international norms play a significant role in forming a state policy. Japan's security policy is evolving within a pacifist tradition. Thank you. Thank you, Kyoko. I mean, it's, it's certainly there's a lot of interesting ideas to unpack there. And I'd like to bring um, Nobu uh, into the conversation here and get your perspective on some of the arguments that are being made, particularly around the external factors versus the domestic mm. factors. Uh, you've spent a fair bit of time in Washington recently at the at the yes. Wilson Centre. So with I was you, wondering... You, yes. <laughs> where we, we caught up a, a few times uh, for some interesting lunches. Uh, but I was wondering uh, whether I could talk... whether you could talk a little bit about um, the, the sort of emerging strategic competition between the US and China and some of the stru structural or balance of power factors um, that might also be affecting Japan's security policy and its perceptions uh, of its place in the region and in the world uh, and also uh, the domestic security laws and interpretation of Article 9. So what are your views on some of these uh, issues? Thank you very much, Beck. That's a lot. That's all, that's all big questions. Um, I think the domestic politics, I think, you know, Hatakiyama-sensei has already, you know, laid out beautifully about the dynamics. The only thing I can say is that, you know, I, I you know, I, I can observe the, the issue of Article 9 has been lowered right now. And not just because of the, you know, the electoral balance is not, going to be as positive as LDP getting two thirds of the seats in both houses, you know, that's a high bar to clear. And if you don't have that security of clearing that bar, you don't want to raise that issue. So maybe that's, you know, currently down. But I think the more important thing I see is that because of, as you say, US-China competition, the issue is now around Taiwan, right? Taiwan is becoming a, a hotspot. That's, that's a more sensible security issues for Japan rather than explaining the security uh, laws using like the home straight, the home straight, you know, uh, home street emergency and, you know, clear, clearing the streets, right? That was the, that was the rationale of why, why Japan has to change the law. But now it's about Taiwan. When Taiwan is an issue, of course, the Okinawa Island, or to be precise, Takishima Island, is part of the arena. It's part of our domestic defense, right? National defense. So in terms of legal argu arguments, you don't necessarily have to have the Article 9. I mean, you can just, you can just claim that we need to enhance our uh, security capabilities because of the security issues right now we're facing. And frankly, I think in the past three years, Japan is getting what Japan wanted, right? We have the, we have the new unit, like the Amphibious Rapid Development Brigade, newly established in 2018. We have the Cyber Protection Unit established this year. And we, we also have like the de facto aircraft carrier. We don't, you don't have the, you know, the, it's, it's a helicopter cap, uh, carrier right now, but it's a de facto aircraft carrier. So in, in terms of these defense equipments, we, we are getting what we want, especially in the face of, you know, like Taiwan issues and having our islands being an integral part of the competition, the physical competition that we have to be embraced. So I think that is pretty much giving a, a good legal a legal rationale that we can do without changing the Article Nine and everything, right? So it's an ironical situation. We, we didn't hope for that, but it's an ironically that's what I could see right now. Um, 
the bigger picture about the Indo-Pacific that you 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 have been um, giving me the question about, I think there's more emphasis on cooperation than competition. I think you know the way the Japanese security logic is made is always between Japan, uh, between U.S. and China, right? And of course, there is the economic relationship with China that we don't want to lose, but. Uh, it's now the dilemma is not just between China and United States. It's also between Southeast Asia and United States or Southeast Asia and China. I think that is getting clear, not just my expertise, but I think that is a fair observation because you, you see all these commitments that Suga administration made. As you see, you know, he, he traveled to J Vietnam and Indonesia for his physical visit, first physical visit outside. You know, you have the Indonesia 2 plus 2 meeting that argued about the Sulu and Sulawesi Sea, not the South China Sea, Sulu, Sulawesi Sea. It, it's giving us a signal that there is a deeper strategic need for Japan to be engaged with in Southeast Asia. And this is more about cooperation with Southeast Asia rather than just a competition between US and China. I think that signaling is pretty strong right now. And I think that's where, where things, not just in economic domains, but security domains are moving. So yes, let me stop there. Could I ask you uh, just yes, briefly yes. Uh, about the quadrilateral security dialogue and how important yeah. is that as a part of Japan's Indo-Pacific um, policy? I think the, the, the last one was pretty significant. You see, you, we, 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 of course, we understand the four countries share geostrategic interests and geostrategic, you know, um, uh, commitments vis-a-vis -vis China, right? But it also said that we four countries are providing, say, public goods together for Southeast Asia. We, we're not just the we're not just a strategic or, or, or alliance, but we are a provider of a public goods, which is the vaccine in this case, to Southeast Asia. So this is a very, I think this is a very important shift. And I think we really need to acknowledge that. And really, we really need to push that direction. Like, so that we, you know, the quad is not, just A, but there's function B and function C. And if that claim rings a bell or get in a, you know, a support, then the quad will have a meaningful you know, uh, cooperation framework. I think it is a key. And, and, and because of that, the Southeast Asia piece, whether they're convinced with that argument, you know, like well, whether they are convinced with four countries as a you know, and a, and a cooperation for public goods, I think it's going to fly. But if that fails, which is currently India is suffering a lot. So that's a very worrying sign right now. But we shouldn't stop at vaccine. We should, you know, keep on adding to the menus. And I think it's a, it's a good direction. I think it's, it's a very promising direction. Yeah, I think there might be a, a bit of a tension in how uh, the Quad states emphasise ASEAN centrality, but of course the Quad states, yeah, so the Quad doesn't definitely. include uh, any uh, countries from ASEAN. I think that might be a little bit of a tension there. But Nick, uh, I might ask you now, of course, you've got a lot of expertise and a lot of writing on uh, Asian order, security and economic order. So I'm hoping you might be able to, to comment on the, the sort of the changing nature of the security order in East Asia and what you see as Japan's role, particularly in the security domain, uh, in this changing order. Is it, uh, you know, is it a contributor to this shift uh, in uh, order in Asia or is it, um, you know, as a, as a regional power, does it really just have to kind of respond to the changes uh, that are really initiated or, or coming from uh, the great powers, particularly US and China? Thanks, Beck. I mean, I'd start actually by sort of going back to Kyoko's book, because I think what she charts in the book and the argument that she draws out is, is an interesting story of how the region's order has evolved. And that's to say what you have is, is a Japan that is beginning to shift its security policy 
in a, in a normal direction and reflecting the norms of international society, that's to say multinational peacekeeping operations, that states that are wealthy have an obligation to play these kinds of roles, that military is not just about fighting one another or defending your interests, but about making a sort of positive contribution to, to a stable order. Whilst that's happening in the 90s and early parts of the 2000s, the regional conditions are pretty stable. That's to say you've got an American-dominated security order that's accepted by all of the major powers in the region, including China, which meant that what, you know, that, that really allowed the circumstances that Kirkwood describes where it's really a domestic transformation that's driving it in the, in the, in the, in the first instance. But then that intersects with a broader transformation in the region and a China that's becoming more confident, more powerful, and most crucially under Xi Jinping more assertive and saying, actually, we're no longer content with the old ways of doing things. We're no longer content with America being the primary security, primary provider of security goods and all of its allies. And so as these two things intersect with one another, you've got Japan essentially trying to become more normal, but then what it means to be normal shifts again, <laughs> because what we have is an international security order that's not what we thought it was going to be at the late 90s, early 2000s, which is broadly liberal and in which we're moving away from great power competition and the use of force is about you know, providing public goods. And actually maybe we're going back to a, a vision of the world in which great power competition is, is significant, that you're going to have to spend money on offensive warfighting capabilities. You're going to have to take risks um, doing that. And I think that's, that's kind of where the, that's where the tension is right now in Japan's security policy and what kind of role it's going to play. Because I think if, you know, if we continue down the path that I think the Trump administration had taken us, which was a very overtly competitive and kind of militarized competition with China without a whole lot of thinking behind it has to be said, I think Japan and to a lesser degree, Australia might have found participating in that really difficult and really complex. Whereas the Biden administration so far, I think, has tried to sketch out a vision for competition with, competition with the United States that is competitive but not antagonistic. And I think they are rightly trying to draw a distinction between competition, which is something where you prevail but you don't defeat the enemy, and what the Trump administration sort of or what they've positioned as the Trump administration's approach, which is, you know, an, an zero sum, we win, you lose view of things. And I think that's where the, the reconfiguration of the quad and the kind of role that the quad plays that, that Noble was talking about, I think is a, is a useful and, and, and quite positive contribution to say, okay, it's not just for large-ish, medium-sized powers who are allies or partners of the US trying to contain China, but actually providing public goods um, and making a positive contribution and saying we are going to compete for influence, but in ways that are like, okay, how can we get vaccines out? How might we get infrastructure working? How, how might we establish um, uh, sort of um, safety and security in cyberspace and things, things along those lines? So we're really, I think where we are is in a really interesting point in Asia's security order. It's clearly in a position of transition. The old order has gone where everyone was happy, broadly speaking, or content, probably a better word than happy, um, with American-centred American order. China is clearly not happy with that. Um, we're not quite sure what alternative it presents, um, but we need to have a much clearer sense of what the competition with China is over, what's it about and what's it for. Um, and not just competition for competition's sake, but competition to provide a certain kind of whether it's a set of public goods or a set of order. And I think we're beginning to, that's beginning to come into focus. And in that framework, I think Japan's, the kind of Japan's security policy that Kyoko describes, I think can play a positive role in that, although limited, I think, um, and same for Australia and same for India. I think the other issue to, to put on the table is if you go down the realm, so go down the path of unrestrained military-focused geopolitical competition, then countries like Japan and Australia actually can't do a great deal more than we currently do. You know, maybe a little aircraft carrier here, a few subs there, but in, in the scale of great powers duking it out militarily, we are, you know, we're a side, <laughs> a side order. So, um, so that's, I think that's the broad sense is that we're in a period of real transition, Japan, Australia, India, and then countries we haven't talked about. And I think Noah's really right to, to focus on it. The countries in, in Southeast Asia who 
I think if you if you're playing your sort of undergraduate Kissingerian realpolitik and moving the chess pieces around the board, you sort of forget that there are these big important countries. You know, Vietnam, 90 million people; the Philippines, 90 million people; Indonesia, nearly 300 million people. These are big important countries with lots of people whose whose lives and societies matter, and they will have and they have to have a role to play in this. Which, if we just let geopolitics rip, is going to be you know really counterproductive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I did want to take us back uh, before we get to Q&A. Please do put your questions into the Q&A uh, box. But one last question for you, Nick, about Australia and Japan. I mean, those, if you, if you take a kind of longer view history uh, or a longer view um, of, of Australia's foreign policy history, it, it, it might seem a little bit surprising that Japan and Australia are often so casually described as like-minded states now. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, do you see Japan and Australia doing more together in this contested security environment? Uh, are we likely to see a formal alliance emerge? Is this uh, even possible given the constraints on uh, the existing constraints on Japan's security policy? Uh, and whether, uh, you know, are we as like-minded as, as some of the, the narratives suggest or are there still points of tension that really need to be worked through? Yeah, I think it's it's easy to forget. You know, my, my father's godfather refused to talk to him uh, because he lived and worked in Japan for three years and my, his godfather had been a prisoner of war in, in PNG. So this is still within living memory that this is this is a difficult issue. So we sort of, there's that history. And then there are the, the tensions that we ha have come up with trade-related or whether they're around um, uh, whales and environmental issues um, or, and I think probably more recently, around liberal democracy. You know, I think that's something which we tend to, uh, in our desire to find common ground, often forget that Japan uh, undertakes a, a version of democracy with which, if you dig into it a great deal, whether it's on press freedoms, whether it's on jail, um, prisoner convictions, prisoners' rights, free, free expression, there's a lot of things where, um, if we're talking about a rules-based liberal international order, um, we wouldn't want to be too closely under the hood. Um, that said, I think I the, the thing that surprised me the most in recent years about how um, Australia and Japan could work together very effectively was in relation to the TPP. So this is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which when the Trump administration pulled out of, a lot of people, me included, thought, ah, that's it, because the whole reason for joining the TPP for a lot of countries was access to the US markets. And so with the US out of the story, then, you know, it's like the jam donut with no jam in it. Um, but Japan, I mean, Japan was crucial um, under uh, Prime Minister Abe to, to not just retaining it, but Converting it into the now flows, you know, just just flows off the tongue. The CTP, CPTPP, <laughs> its successor. Um, but I think that that's a, an interesting example of how um, two countries with an interest in a more open, more integrated trade environment worked together with others um, to do that in the face of, you know, a really ambivalent US, which is likely to continue to be um, economically ambivalent. I think one other point that's interesting is there used to be in relation to China, a kind of gap between Australia and Japan, where Australia was very careful not to annoy Japan and, and Japan was, sorry, to annoy China, whereas Japan was like, hey, we've got clear disputes with, with China and we would only go so far. Whereas we're now that are almost the other way, we don't care. <laughs> we've decided that for whatever reason, we're quite content to live with a, a trashed bilateral political relationship. And I've have said to, to colleagues in Canberra, I said, I think we need to, we need a model that follows Japan's way of managing our relations with China, which is to say, we can have differences of opinion, but it doesn't get in the way of a practical and viable bilateral economic relationship, but also a bilateral diplomatic relationship. I mean, the fact that Japan and China have a better diplomatic and political relationship than Australia and China, I think is, is something that the, the, the leadership in Canberra needs to take a good hard look at. So. I think there are gaps there, but there's points of convergence that mean I think there's plenty to, to work on. But I, I, my sense, I think, is that the supporters of what the two countries can do together tend to overstate the extent to which they can work um, and the range of issues which they can productively contribute to as if, you know, I mean, I think if you look at it, a lot of what we do now is pretty much at the edge of the capabilities, whether they're military, whether they're diplomatic or economic. Um, there are important contributions. We can make a difference working together but where we, where we work together 
most effectively is as part of larger groups like CTPP, maybe <laughs> say CPTPP, whereas it's, it's Japan and Australia plus nine others. Um, and I think looking at, you know, Quad Plus and other initiatives that bring particularly those Southeast Asian countries, I think, I think is where the most, um, most beneficial contributions are going to come from. Well, I think uh, we, we are now going to move into uh, Q&A and I'm delighted to see uh, some familiar names in the Q&A and lots of questions coming through. So I might start by reading out our first question because it is from an anonymous attendee. So uh, Professor Hatakiyama, uh, from an internal perspective, do you think that this progressive expansion of roles, engagement and policy in conjunction with the visibility of external threats is to create the normalisation of a reinvigorated defence force within the population. So if this is so, is this to weaken the anti-militarist groups within the electorate and increase support in a referendum for the removal or the rewording of Article 9? Oh, I think you're, you're on mute, Kyoko. Sorry about that. So That's thank okay. you for the question. As I showed you in the slide, uh, we do not have anti-militarist group. We do not have a strong anti-militarist group. So the percentage of the people who support the anti-militarist idea is very, very low. So, and uh, most of the people actually support uh, normal state idea group. That means larger, Japan's larger role in the global society or for global peace. So that means, um, we have a tendency that we have less and less anti-militarist people. And also that might, some of the people, uh, actually perhaps lots of the people may be worried about the uh, revision of Article 9. And however, that even if you, when you say revision of the Article 9, there are many, you know, various uh, versions of the revision. For example, Prime Minister Abe wanted to write the existence of the self-defense forces. And actually, no politicians would want to remove the war clause. That means they, most of the politicians do not want to make Japan that can go to war. So that means even if we revise Article 9, that would not mean that Japan would go to war like the United States. Is that, is it okay? So That's great. Mm -mm. Well, we've got lots of questions, so it'll be good to move on to the next question. Uh, actually, I might ask uh, Yoichiro Sato, if you are there, uh, we might try to get you on camera so that you can ask your question to the panel directly. Let's see if this works. Ah, there you are. Okay. Uh, can you hear me? Yep, perfectly. Hello. Oh, great. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hatakeyama-san, uh, good to see you. <laughs> and friends in Australia, nice to see you. Uh, well, you know, Hatakeyama-san described that the old left is dead. And then, you know, is there a new left and what are they doing? That's the kind of core of my questions. And... You know, the current Abe government is pursuing, uh, you know, close, closer alliance with the U.S. and its other allies. And I think the whole policy direction is uh, uh, kind of closed by the so-called normalization uh, of the nation ideology. But... Uh, some suspect that Japan is pursuing a more realist uh, policy. That means that uh, the alliance is not viewed as something permanent, but more of a uh, temporary arrangement for security. And, and the, the present uh, uh, the fluid international environment in the Indo-Pacific uh, may be something closer to Europe pre-World War One, where the balance of power is not quite stable. But how does the current government see the situation? And 
is there anything the left can do in the ongoing policy debate in that sense? Thank you for the question. Okay, so uh, I'm not sure about the meaning of new left. So new left means the uh, former left, but supporting Japan's larger role. So are you talking about the people who support UN, you know, uh, centrism? Correct? Uh, by, by new left, what I mean is uh, opponent of Abe. <laughs> opponent of Abe, okay. So Whether Abe, they can regroup yeah. themselves or not. <laughs> okay. So Abe actually, you know, supports uh, Japanese alliance and try to strengthen the alliance. And uh, these people, actually, the LDP supports Abe's argument. And as Yoichiro sensei said, there is new left. And uh, these people actually support Japan's larger law uh, within the UN framework. So that means as long as we have UN endorsement, that is fine to play a military role. However, without the UN endorsement, we cannot do anything. We do not want to support US-led military action. So that is the you know, different way of thinking. But they all of them support Japan's larger role, but the emphasis is very different. So in this point, uh, yes, these are, however, I think minor differences because all the politicians support Japan's larger role. And uh, I'm not sure how much people, how many people support the balance of power system in the Indo-Pacific, but, uh, the, even these new left or, uh, you know, uh, opponents of Abe supports Japan-US alliance as a cornerstone of Japan's foreign policy. So I don't think Japan would depart from the Japan-US alliance and then try to establish a kind of balance of power system in the Indo-Pacific. And as Professor Bisley said, uh, because Japan does not have enough military power, and even though we expand our military strengths, uh, we do not have nuclear weapons. So that means it is quite difficult for us to you know, balance, uh, for example, against China by strengthening the you know, military power. And also it takes a lot of time to strengthen the military power and it costs a lot economically. So I don't think that would be a, you know, major view in the future. Thank you. We have a few questions here about um, Southeast Asia uh, and the Quad. So one, uh, I don't have a name, so I'll read it out. And then I'll ask Samathi Pamel to, to come on screen and, and to ask their question. Uh, so the first question uh, is from a first year graduate um, student at ICU. Uh, who says China's assertive maritime behaviour in the East and South China Seas has pushed Japan and Southeast Asia countries towards greater security cooperation, especially under the second um, Abe administration. So what kind of role uh, do you think that Japan can play in the South China Sea? Uh, I'll direct that to Nobu and then to Nick. But before we do that, I would like to ask Samathi to ask their question, which I think we can sort of tie these questions together. So... Your question, Sumathi? Hi, uh, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, perfectly. Okay, so um, uh, thank you very much for that interesting presentation to all the three panelists. And I pick uh, the point made by all of them that uh, Southeast Asian security, especially in the Sulu celibacy, uh, also uh, South China Sea at large, uh, it's one of the predominant factor uh, when we talk about Japan's uh, new security policy. But I also uh, like to draw the attention on the Quad. Uh, I agree the Quad is more than the geopolitics that, you know, this, uh, besides the strategic uh, framework, the Quad also provide public uh, goods, for example, the vaccine and other uh, digitalization and so on. But I do believe that uh, there are some uh, fundamental issues on how Southeast Asian countries are responding or views, view uh, the Quad uh, on the military aspect or the geostrategic. 
So uh, would that uh, be a, a problem or a significant impact on the quad development, especially in relation to South China Sea or Indo-Pacific in large? Thank you. Nobu, I might start with you and then I'll pass it on to Nick. Yes. Um, yes, definitely. Both are very important questions. Um, let, let, let me respond to Samati's question first. Um, well, thank you very much for asking. Um, you, you're, you're right. I mean, the, the kind of anxiety that the Southeast Asian countries have for Quad or the skepticism is very critical. So I think that is exactly why that the Quad meeting has a new agenda to, to discuss about. We're not just discussing about our issues with China, but we're discussing the way we could cooperate. Um, but, but as you know, I mean, quad countries, uh, be it the United States, Japan, Australia, India, I mean, they, they are talking with Southeast Asia on a separate way. So quad is not just one, but also you have like the Shangri-La dialogue and we have the ASEAN plus meetings. So I think it's, it, I think there must be a diplomatic effort that, you know, Quad is not the primary channel for Japan, Australia, US to talk with Southeast Asia, right? Um, you know, I, I, I fully understand the Southeast Asian anxiety, but I think there must be more of a diplomatic effort. Like we do have, we do put importance on Quad as a strategic uh, concept, but that's not the way we communicate with Southeast Asia. I think that has to be, you know, repeatedly clarified, right? Because it is, it isn't, right? Uh, so I think uh, I think your your feedback or your your opinion is really really important, and I think that you know, to in response to that, I think all the four countries has to do a better job in in telling that. Um, for the fir first question um, uh, from uh, Lin from uh, Vietnam, um, thank you very much too. Um, you're, you're also right that, you know, the, the capacity of the Japanese has for South China Sea is limited. So, but that I think, but still Japan is trying to find its way because as you know, all these security domains are well connected. You know, East China Sea and South China Sea is really connected. The issues are connected. And, and as I, I referred to, like Japan's emphasis on the the Sulu and Sulawesi has a very strong connection with the South China Sea. So um, to give you an answer, like it's not the kind of maritime security, um, you know, procurement that Japan can stand out vis-a-vis -vis the others. For example, in case of Vietnam, I'm sure the Russians and Indians have much more stronger tradition of cooperation. So in those like, you know, hardware, Maybe Japan is not yet there to make a balanced contribution, but as you know, like the satellite system, the Japanese got the you know the NEC got the satellite system for Vietnam. Um, of course, it's primarily for meteorological issues, but also that is the very strong strategic infrastructure for not just dual use but triple use and so on. You know, it's the it's the, it's the infrastructure. It's the eyes for. Um, you know, economic activity, but also with the security activity. Of course, you know, Vietnam rejected, you know, Chinese offer of Beidou system. So they were looking for an alternative. You know, Japan came to all in to be able to meet the Vietnamese needs. I think those are the domains that Japan can, you know, um, can and also are willing to do so. Um, I think it's, it's the concept that Jap Japan is making and the current government is making is to have more autonomy, right? This strategic autonomy. And this is where economy and security meets, right? So this is like inf uh, infrastructure on cyberspace, satellites, and so on. And now we talk about central banking, you know, how the, you know, the digital central banking system, you know, you name it, Japan did with uh, uh, Cambodia, everywhere said Cambodia has strong relationship with China, but, you know, with the central banking system, Japan was there to you know, create their system. So you have these like satellites, central bank, you know, this is not a kinetic military menu, but it's a, it's a strategically hugely important uh, issues that Japan really 
Canon and, and putting its, you know, not just economic capital, but political capital to go for it. So I think in, in that end, I think that those are the um, cooperation that Japan can offer. Nick, uh, what are your views on these questions? Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely with Nobu. I mean, I think both because of the limitations of what Japan can do militarily, but also I think the utility of kind of being a third party, like a non-claimant state, doing, you know, hairy-chested sail-throughs and things like that. It's just not going to get anyone anywhere. So I think it's the, it's the contextual stuff. So being part of a chorus of countries saying, you know, peaceful resolution of, of um, disputes and rule of law and arbitral tribunal and all of the, the broader environment, although that's, there's only so far that's going to go. But more importantly, it's all of the stuff around working collaboratively with partners, you know, with the claimant states around not the disputes themselves, but about the things that they need and providing an alignment of interests, whether it's about development aid, whether it's about investment, whether it's about um, telcos or whatever it might be. I think that's that's the that's the sort of contribution Japan can, the big contribution which Japan can make a really meaningful difference that will that has not just yeah immediate economic benefits, but has I think long-term strategic benefits of a kind that it sort of hark back to that original vision of how Japan plays a role that, that Kyoko was talking about at the start, right at the start, which is Japan perceived it's the kind of role and benefit it could play was not through the pointy end of a gun, or point of a gun but the, the, the tip of the spear, so to speak, but through development aid and support and assistance and trade and investment. And a 21st century version of that, I think, is, is makes sense. Mm. On, on the quad, just a really quick thing, I think, the Quad has been up until really the vaccine stuff an exercise in political signalling, and that's one of its biggest, biggest kind of, it's why it's, we hear about it so much, but it's also pretty thin signalling. It's a lot of talk, it's a lot of action. Mm. But one of the downsides around it also is it sends the wrong signals. That's to say, it says, this is what it's all about. Mm. Um, and if you're a Japan or Australia or even the United States to say, we want a region um, that's open and stable and broadly liberal, um, talking about the quad is not going to help you achieve that end. It's much more multivariate. It needs much more, it needs many countries to be involved over lots of issue areas uh, and doing, doing everything sort of in and through the quad is, is in fact counter to that, that goal. Yeah, it does seem to be the sort of the favouring of minilateralism over multilateralism in some of these Indo-Pacific concepts. But if we are really quick, we can fit in a couple of a couple more questions. So, Donna, are you here, Donna Weeks? I might get you to ask your question. Uh, look, thank you for uh, presentation, Kyokona, um, and I'm looking forward to reading your book in in detail. It's an area I'm working on as well. But I guess my interest too, the reason I came back to Japan was, was the underlying resistance that we also see to Japanese security policy. And specifically, my question was American bases in Okinawa continue to be a site of domestic contestation in national security policy. I mean, how do you see the Okinawan position, for example, fitting into the national debate? It seems to be overlooked quite a bit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your question, Dana. Uh, actually, I think the Okinawa program continues in the future because, you know, even people in Okinawa support the Japan-US alliance and they understand without alliance, Japan cannot defend ourselves. So that's why they understand that having US meet the alliance in Japan, but uh, they do not want to host the, you know, stations. That is a problem. And the uh, Japanese government tried to, you know, solve the problem. However, it's quite difficult for us to find the alternative, you know, places for US meters. So that's why there is no good solution at the moment. And, uh, you know, left-wing parties or people having a, such an anti-missus idea supports the move in Okinawa. I mean, the, you know, opposition, opposite move to, against U.S. military bases. However, I have to emphasize that not all people in Okinawa are against U.S. you know, military bases. I, I have to say, not all the people in Okinawa are against the alliance but they do not want to host the US military bases, that's it. 
So we have to try to find a solution, but it seems quite difficult. And I can't think of any good solution at the moment. Thank you. Okay, well, we might have to leave it there. Um, I'm terribly sorry that we have to go because we have a lot of questions left in the Q&A. But if any of you would like your questions answered, I'm sure that we can arrange that if you uh, email us uh, at Latrobe Asia. But I would like to finish up by, again, congratulating Kyoko on publishing the book. It is an amazing achievement and it's just been really uh, tremendous hearing you uh, describe the intricate arguments that you are making in this book I'm sure it's set to make an excellent contribution uh, to our understanding of Japan's approach to security but also to our understanding of how security policy is formed more generally uh, which you can order this book through the Routledge website. Uh, I'd also like to thank our panellists Nobu and Nick as always you have been excellent friends of Latrobe Asia and we appreciate your time and your insights and thank you to our audience uh, for watching this Latrobe Asia event. The webinar has been recorded. If you have registered for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they are ready. Uh, You can keep an eye out for our next book launch, uh, which we hope will be in person in Melbourne, but we will have to see about that. Uh, But that will be, uh, it will be um, hybrid, so you can watch it online as well anyway, but that will be David Brophy's book, uh, China Panic, uh, and that is scheduled for the end of the month. But please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and uh, the Trove Asia publication. So thank you again.